The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. There are two undeniable facts that we must recognize. Number one, China has been winning on everything. I mean, you know, China has been slowly buying us out, buying our debt. They did this in Africa with the Boaten, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. That's where they're redeveloping all of these uh, different countries or actually helping develop all these countries. They're putting their finances behind them. They're getting nice minerals and resources out of Africa. That's why you have Tedros, uh, whatever the heck his name is, from Ethiopia, the political, uh, the political hack who's running the World Health Organization, to which China was able to pressure the WHO into misinformation across the globe with the pandemic that they leaked as a bioweapon. So while they're buying up Africa and financially enslaving them and doing so quite articulately here in the United States, they also decided, hey, we're going to unleash a pandemic and wreck everybody's economy, except for ours. You know, we'll make it look bad in the beginning. You know, we'll weld people in their houses and then we'll show people falling dead in the street. And anyone that speaks out that gives the truth about it, they'll just magically disappear. But then we will come out unscathed. You know, we'll celebrate our Chinese New Year and we'll be set to be the economic powerhouse in 10 years for 2030, just in time for the Agenda 2030. And uh, that's what they did. Their scientists, which were military bioengineers, are in cahoots with our professors and our lab technicians and our scientists and what have you. And they are getting together to come up with, you know, gain-of-function bioweapons. We're looking at it like, well, you know, we better work with the Chinese so that we can make sure that we can have a hand in overseeing what a virus can do. And they're looking at it on the other hand going, hey, we could turn this into a weapon. They even said so in their own materials. Only, for some reason, we didn't have anybody that could speak Chinese to read it. Yeah, right. So, China was winning there. And now we have the, the new axis of evil. And that is China. That is Iran. Russia. I mean, that is... You could throw North Korea in as Chinese uh, terrorist wing. You know, that's they're the China, they're like the Hezbollah for Iran, but you've now got Afghanistan because for some reason, and I'm not going to go into detail because everybody in the world has already been talking about this, but for some reason, we thought it a good idea to just pack up and leave without any good real exit plan. You know, we could have waited until the killing season was over of the summer to which the brutal winters make it as such to where these tribal factions have to hide out in the mountains and then come up on their poppy harvest season that occupies their time so that they can financially, you know, litter the world with opioid resources um, for financial gain. 
Yeah, we waited until the middle of the summer and just decided, yeah, let's just get on out of here. We'll have people grab onto the sides of the planes. And you couldn't come up with more of a clown show than having airplanes carrying military members trying to leave with people who we helped hanging from the wheel wells and falling thousands of feet from the sky to their death. That right there is a clown show. That is Benghazi part two. In fact, what Joe Biden was able to do was to take the embassy in Saigon in in Vietnam, the Iran hostage affair, and then throw in Benghazi, stir it all up into a 20-year loss, and toss it out there as Afghanistan cut and run. And I didn't want to be in Afghanistan in the first place. And now, truth be told, we were sold a bill of goods. 9-11 9-11 happens. Oh, it's uh, we've got to go after Osama bin Laden. He's up there in the mountains of Afghanistan, and he plotted this whole thing, even though the majority of the pilots and the people that were involved with assisting the suicide pilots were all Saudi Arabian, to the point where there was 28 pages of redacted documents within the 9-11 Commission report because it implicated the Saudis. And those were under wraps for about, what, 14, 15 years? We're coming up on year 20, right? The 20th anniversary of the death of thousands of people falling from the 85th floor of a building that was slammed into by a jet airplane that eventually crumbled. And we thought we had to go to Afghanistan to take them out. And then everybody goes on and on. Well, you know, we did the mission. We got Osama bin Laden. Here's a little story I want to tell you about. And this is just inside story. I haven't been able to confirm it, but the sources that gave it to me are pretty unimpeachable. In fact, one of them was a gentleman who was a family friend who shared a plot in the mountains with my family. Uh, They had a cabin right next door, and we got got to know him over the years and got to talk to him quite a bit. And apparently he was in the CIA, and he was very close to Osama bin Laden back in the late 70s when Russia was the foe against Osama bin Laden, and we were funding and assisting Osama. Uh, and he, through that, through that relationship, ended up knowing Osama bin Laden. Well, after 9-11 happened and everything, and we were trying to find Osama bin Laden, he's putting out videos left and right. I was told that this individual had told members of my family, let's just say, that because of Osama bin Laden's dialysis and his kidney issues, that the CIA was not only sending dialysis equipment to Osama bin Laden to, you know, because of their past relationship, but they were also tracking him, and that's how they kept tabs on wherever he was. Well, in 2007, that slowed up to a halt. Suddenly there was no, you know, uh, equipment, no dialysis equipment being sent over to Afghanistan. It was also around that time that there was no videos being made anymore. And this was the end of the Bush era coming up on, on Obama. It's been told to me through the gentleman that we knew from the CIA that most likely Osama bin Laden died in 2007. Now, Osama bin Laden had a lot of brothers, like 15, 20 brothers, something like that. A lot of them look very similar to him. 
So we were, we always, after we heard that and we saw what happened when Obama was president and they said they took out Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, they raided that house and he, you know, he's in the corner jerking off to porn. We come busting in the door with a double tap, taking him out as he tries to hold some concubine in the way as a human shield. I have a good reason to believe that was probably a relative of his that looked like him. Because what did Obama do? Well, then we couldn't even see the, the corpse. They had to cover it up. They put it on a boat, take it out in the middle of the ocean, drop it in the ocean. No one's the wiser. And this is how they've been doing things for, for ages. So we go into Afghanistan under these false pre pretenses of, you know, we're going to stop the war on terror. And I was behind it because that was what I was sold. You know, we're going to stop the war on terror. And then they sold it to us with a Iraq. We need to go do that to Iraq because Saddam Hussein was crafting WMDs that back when Clinton was in office, they were just sending airstrikes left and right that did absolutely nothing because every time they sent Hans Bricks and whatever UN weapon inspector into Saddam Hussein's weapons facilities, you know, he gave him a heads up. Hey, we're coming in to inspect. And then Saddam Hussein wheels the stuff out and everything looks clean and pristine and we go around with this dosey -si do of suddenly there's weapons again. That happened for a quite a bit of time. So we were told, well, because of the threat in the Middle East, we can't take people like Saddam Hussein lightly either. So let's just go ahead and bomb them too. Eventually, though, we gave Iraq over to Iran. <laughs> and Iran is running Baghdad. And no one was told of this. You just kind of found out, what? Iran's running Baghdad? That's odd. Well, now Iran's running Afghanistan through the Taliban. You know, Iran has their wings, their Hezbollah wing, their Hamas wing. Hamas is how they pressure Israel. Hezbollah is their terror wing that goes around the world. Um, they're in Cuba. They're in uh, the Philippines. They're in Brazil. They come up across the southern border with, with MS-13 uh, drug cartels from Mexico that they've made deals with. And Iran now, because the Taliban was able to foster and organize in Pakistan and speaking through the WhatsApp, organizing the quick takeover that happened over the weekend when Joe Biden just decided to yank everybody out willy-nilly, we're now sitting here with a country that we fostered just a waste of lives of, of good patriotic souls that ended up giving their life for 20 years of BS and we're sitting here with nothing to show for it, except for now Iran is funding the Taliban. Oh, and China, China has made deals with the Taliban as well. In fact, China wants to pay to rebuild and reconstruct Afghanistan. So yeah, we're sitting in a great spot. Now we've got our axis of evil and we've got China encroaching into areas. Now, we do have one saving grace for us from James Glancy. Only the Panjshir has not surrendered to the Taliban. The Mujahideen are standing firm under Ahmad Mossad, providing refuge to minorities. They were never conquered by the Soviets or the Taliban. They need support now. So this guy is in the valley uh, and he in, in Afghanistan, and apparently his team is trying to get other Afghanis to join them to fight the Taliban. So I don't know how that goes down. Apparently this guy's, too, you know, he's tough as nails. 
but this is what we're dealing with. All the while, our media and our government is trying to inject wokeism on the Taliban and gaslight Americans into thinking, yeah, the Taliban, they like Sharia law and they want women to be dressed head to toe in a hijab. Let's hear the media talk about how inclusive and how woke the Taliban is going to be with females in their government. The UN Security Council issued a joint press statement earlier today calling for a new government that is united, inclusive, and representative, including with the full and, full and meaningful participation of women. The council spoke with one voice to underscore that Afghanistan must abide by its international obligations, including to international humanitarian law and ensure the safety and security of all Afghans and international citizens. Attacks against civilians or civilian objects must stop, and the human rights and fundamental freedoms of all Afghan citizens, especially women, girls, and members of minority groups, must be respected. We have expressed in no uncertain terms here at the United Nations through a very strongly worded press statement from the Security Council that we expect the Taliban to respect human rights, including the rights of women and girls. We have also indicated that they have to be respectful of humanitarian law. Yeah, well, that's not what they say. (laughs) They do say that women are going to be involved in the government, but only if it fits with Sharia law. So, uh, yeah, women will be materially participating in the Talibani government, only they're going to be sex slaves and they'll probably be raped. And But they'll be participating. They'll be included in this inclusive, woke government. But it gets even crazier. <laughs> I mean, uh, listen to them. Li- listen to the media just go on and on about how they're just peaceful and uh, yeah they're saying death to america but yeah yeah they're still nice they're just chanting death to america but they seem friendly at the same time it's utterly bizarre ah they don't mean it it's like iran death to america ah, they don't mean it uh, and then president dementia sitting down with george stephanopoulos they ask him well um you know uh what did you think about all that happened? He's like, oh, that was like four or five days ago. No, it was two days ago, President Ice Cream. But we've all seen the pictures. We've seen those hundreds of people packed into a C-17. We've seen Afghans falling. That was four days ago, five days ago. What did you think when you first saw those pictures? Yeah, only it was two days, not four or five. But we're not going to get this information because the news is going to hide it. And then they wanted to ask the Taliban, what do you think about free speech? And then he calls out Facebook censorship, which is censoring all of the information that would refute BS like Joe Biden just said. Listen to him throw Facebook back in our face saying America doesn't even believe in free speech because Facebook is basically censoring everybody. This question should be asked to those people who are uh, claiming to be promoters of freedom of speech uh, who do not allow uh, publication of all information. I can ask Facebook uh, company. Uh, This question should be asked to them. 
This entire crap show couldn't even be made up if you tried. I mean, the Taliban's talking about inclusive uh, sh- women in their government with Sharia law and Facebook is censoring and, and it's all us. It's all on us. And Biden has been given all these ridiculous press conferences where he's talking about knocking on wood and he, he's just, he sounds like a, a jumbled idiot. Um, and he spend more t- spent more time talking about, you know, uh, vaccinations for COVID than he did talking about what's going on in Afghanistan. And, and one of them, uh, he's just lost. And that should be concerning. So on the other side of the break, we're going to get into what the real nuts and bolts of Afghanistan really are that the public doesn't really know, because there's a lot more to the story of why the Afghan military just up and just handed the country over and uh, why we were eh, over there after 9-11 in the first place. Back in a moment. This is Adrian Slade. Now, there is a giant disconnect between the generals and our president, the commander in chief of all people, and what's really happening on the ground or what was happening on the ground in Afghanistan, especially with the military, because we keep hearing that they thought that the military would be able to hold the nation, right? (laughs) Wait till you hear some of the on the ground reports, the video that came out of actual soldiers talking about what the situation was. But first, let's hear the confident Joe Biden and then his generals talk about how they thought that they would hold the, the nation down. Is a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. Because you have the Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped, as well-equipped as any army in the world, and an air force, against something like 75,000 Taliban. It is not inevitable. Okay, so Joe Biden himself saying it's not inevitable that that takeover would happen by the Taliban. But obviously it did within a couple of days. And now listen to his general. Let me make one comment on the intelligence. Because I'm seeing all over the news that there are warnings of a rapid collapse. I have previously said from this podium and in sworn testimony before Congress that the intelligence clearly indicated multiple scenarios were possible. Yeah, well, the multiple scenarios uh, actually boiled down to cables and advice that basically said that this would happen. And I think when you hear the soldiers on the ground talking about the Afghan military that we put together, you'll kind of come to the same conclusion that, yeah, it would have been an easy, easy pushover. I mean, they're getting high. They don't care what they're doing. There's videos of them doing jumping jacks, and they're completely uncoordinated. They, they, they're so out to lunch. It's almost like, you know, it, it's kind of like when you have, let's say you have your war is an Applebee's and you're the general manager of the Applebee's. So the, the military member, this is a 25 year old kid who's over there fighting for our country. He's basically the general manager of an Applebee's. And this is the cook that they hired from Afghanistan. Who's selling weed out the back door, right? <laughs> it's, and so when the going gets tough, This guy is going to run out the back door and you're probably not going to see him again, even though 
he was hired and that's his way of getting a paycheck. But that's how much commitment they have. There's no Afghan pride. There's no Afghanistan, uh, you know, this patriotism to stand up for its nation. It's a bunch of warring sects. And when you hear this soldier talk about the military that we, that Joe Biden says are so strong, 300,000 in an air force. And you know, the commanders are all, uh, the generals over here in America are all like, yeah, we, we should have held strong. We've trained them. I mean, it's 20 years. They've trained this military, but listen to this military member talk about, I mean, they're not even wearing the helmets on correctly. Listen to this. You're not ready. You don't have a helmet on. Jeep doesn't have a rifle right now. How is he ready? It's like having 26 kids that I have to watch after. It really is. Ready would be on the road, staged, ready to move at 8.30. I think if they introduced drug testing to the Afghan army, uh, we would lose probably three quarters to maybe 80, 85 percent of the army. It requires telling them almost 30 times, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Come on, let's go! Building up Afghanistan's army is one of the mainstays of the U.S. exit strategy from this war. It now stands at around 80,000 soldiers. But President Obama recently announced he wants to triple that number. These U.S. Marines are embedded tactical trainers, also known as ETTs, and their job is to mentor the fledgling Afghan army. Check your soldiers, make sure they're good. Someone's, someone's got a helmet on backwards. They all still got their weapons slung on their shoulders like it's not a, a fucking combat patrol. I know we're supposed to advise them and everything like that, but they're supposed to be able to conduct tactical operations without us. So if I wasn't standing here right now, it makes me wonder if a dude in a bright blue shirt would be going into the mountains, and he probably would be. You get over here and you walk into a whole squad of ANA smoking hashish. They don't understand that the use of drugs, it affects the way that they, they accomplish their mission. It ultimately, it affects their ability to protect their nation and get Afghanistan on its feet. Who's smoking hashish around here? Who's smoking hash? We're going to find them. Soldiers come out without helmets. Soldiers come out missing a lot of gear. There's inspections that need to be done before we step off on a patrol. Right now, we're not going to go on the patrol. Hey, get some shots out there! Get in the fight! Let's go! Start shooting! Yeah, they're not even trying to fight. It's, it's utterly ridiculous. So to think that the Taliban couldn't just step in there and run the city over within a couple of days like they did, uh, it's extremely plausible, even though we've been there for 20 years, because they depended on us. I mean, first, we hired all these people and gave them... Some something to work for, but then at the same time, it requires you know we only showed them so much because it's going to require us to to guide them and to give them support. It's it's utterly insane, and this is because the real mission wasn't about simply terrorism. In fact, um, one of the uh, one of the people who 
has been touting this for a long time, and I'm really back and forth on this guy, is Julian Assange. Listen to him talk about what the real Afghanistan war was all about. Because the goal is not to completely subjugate Afghanistan. The goal is to use Afghanistan to wash money out of the tax bases of the United States, out of the tax bases of European countries, through Afghanistan, and back into the hands of a transnational security elite. That is the goal, i.e. the goal is to have an endless war, not a successful war. Right. A money laundering operation. Could that be the case? I mean, could it be like what we did with the Ukraine? I mean, think about the other nations. We tried something similar in Libya. Look what happened to that. It turned into a collapsed state that the UN has to run. And that's where Benghazi happened. Look at what has happened in Syria. You know, if you've been following this show, you were really versed on Syria. Because I kept saying something doesn't make sense. These aren't little events that we're doing for humanity. You know, we're, we're, this isn't, we didn't do this in Rwanda. We didn't do this in, in uh, you know, the Congo. But for some reason, everybody's descending upon Syria. Why is that? Oh, because Assad's a bad guy and he's gassing his people? Huh. Just like Saddam Hussein had WMDs? Huh. Uh, it's because there is selected regions that they want to focus on for their own gain. We talked about the multiple pipeline efforts that were going to go through Syria, and they wanted to remove Assad. Well, what would happen if you removed Assad? Well, then you would get the free Syrian army taking control, right? Yeah. Half of that is Al-Qaeda, or the Al-Qaeda Syrian offshoot called Al-Nusra. The other half was ISIS, and they tried to play this whole game of humanitarian aid with the White Helmets that were also Al-Qaeda members pretending to be uh, humanitarian medical rescue aids, and then you find out that they're injecting people with air and they're killing them and they're stealing their, their valuables off of them. It was ridiculous. So the same thing can be said for what happened in Ukraine and what's happened. I mean, look, they gave Egypt over to the Muslim Brotherhood. So was Afghanistan the precursor to all this? Because again, now Julian Assange, real quick, my problem with him, he gave up military targets in Iraq that ended up costing the lives of American citizens who were fighting for our, our liberty, fighting for our freedom. So I have a problem with that guy on that end. But at the same time, I have to look at it from the lens of what we're looking at now. You know, maybe he found out that this was all illegitimate and that people are using and exploiting our military for personal gains that have nothing to do with American national security, Americans, America's uh, safety. And to me, I, I, now I can't kind of blame him for it. You know, I mean, that's the problem. It's just my problem is he sacrificed actual good patriots who thought they were doing the right thing, fighting for what the generals told them to do. That's why I'm discouraging my children. My, my dad fought a, a tour in the Korean War, two tours in Vietnam, and special ops. Um, I don't want my kids to join the military. And it's sad to say that. Because back in the day, even with Vietnam, the only reason why Vietnam just ended in collapse is because Democrat president. 
And the communists really didn't like the fact that we were taking on communism. You know, that, and I mean, we were doing it in, in Central America. Uh, you know, that was the thing was we were fighting back communism's creeping into different areas. And the communists really vilified the Vietnam War and ended up putting the pressure on so hard that it fell apart. But notice every time we have a Democrat president, we get a failed war that makes America look horrible. We get an ISIS. We get a Taliban. We always get some sort of murderous regime that goes through cutting off people's heads. Obviously, the Democrats don't care about safety. So when they talk about COVID, oh, you're killing grandmother. We're only worried about your safety. BS. They couldn't care less. They wanted your business to die. They wanted your children with mental problems because they're forced out of school, stuck wearing a mask that they've said is ineffective. I've even seen that a few times today. More studies, the, the mask, the blue mask that everyone fashions and thinks that, you know, is great in the hospital is only 10% effective. Um, but you're going to make all the kids wear them because it's a psyop. Got to keep them in fear. They don't care about lives. They're out there. Nancy Pelosi's out there having a big old donors conference. All of the donees sitting around big money pocketbooks and they're all hanging out maskless while the help goes around wearing masks, serving these elites because they don't care. They don't care about the lives lost. They don't care that they'll just pull the military out and have everyone just get their heads cut off. All the Christians executed there in Afghanistan. They didn't care that the Yazidis were dying on top of Mount Sinjar. I mean, they, they left them to die. They didn't care. Obama didn't care about that. Jimmy Carter didn't care about, you know, our military over in, uh, in Iran or, or the hostages in Iran. They don't care. Stop acting like they do. So when Julian Assange takes issue with the fact that the military is being exploited for their own gain, I feel the same way right now. I wouldn't want my children to grow up and say, I want to serve America and then find out that they're going to help China get enriched off of minerals by wiping out a regime using our military might, putting our children at risk. And that's the thing back in the day, like I was saying with Vietnam and some of these other wars, regardless of the president, even though when we got into Jimmy Carter, we get into Bill Clinton, you know, Bosnia, Black Hawk down. They don't care about military people. They don't care about people who die. Serbia. Um, we have to look at it that before that, the military fighting on behalf of the good of the nation was kind of a bipartisan effort. It was kind of apolitical. It was kind of, you know, we're doing this because we want to maintain freedom and we'll send our kids and our military to go out there and do what is great for our nation to maintain our freedom. That's now been sullied just like the CDC, just like the DOJ, the NSA, the CIA, everything, all the institutions have been ruined, and now the military has been exploited. And they're not going to fight for national security or for the betterment of America and America's interests. They're doing it for the interest of Paul Pelosi and the interest of Mitch McConnell's wife and the interest of uh, John McCain, 
You know, when he was alive, whatever he was getting out of the deal, they're doing it for the bushes. So, yeah, part of me thinks Julian Assange, bad guy for, you know, offering up that information. But at the same time, what did he know that we didn't know that we're starting to learn now? The money laundering of Afghanistan. In fact, this is actually from a Substack from Michael Tracy, a big money funneling operation, Afghanistan veteran reflects on the withdrawal of U.S. forces. As the withdrawal of the U.S. military forces from uh, Afghanistan nears completion, images from Bagram Airfield littered with deserted fleets of American-made vehicles ripe for the taking of whoever ends up with the control of that base have come to exemplify the enormous waste of our 20-year intervention in leaving behind all that equipment. After all, it was the U.S. taxpayers, in one way or another, who subsidized the purchase and transport of those vehicles into a remote territory on the other side of the world. So in turn, taxpayers are also underwriting the acquisition of a nice new truck for whichever locals are lucky enough to get first dibs. What's usually not appreciated, though, is that this kind of waste was deeply ingrained and is a feature for the entire war which should be blindly uh, obvious by now, particularly if you paid attention to the release of the Afghan papers or Afghanistan papers in December 2019, though it was conveniently drowned out by the first Trump impeachment saga happening at the time. But with the withdrawal underway, many inexplicably pro-war pundits are dwelling on the Taliban's rapid retaking of, of territory across the country. Much of the time, without even needing to engage in any combat. In fact, they've gotten more territory than they started with. It's amazing. So on Meet the Press, Chuck Tob displayed the following scary-looking map produced by a neocon think tank, Red Taliban, and it's showing the different areas uh, that are controlled by the Taliban. For more context, I spoke to a U.S. veteran who worked for the Joint Command that oversaw training of Afghan forces during an earlier period of the war. The interview has been highly edited and condensed for clarity. The individual asked to remain anonymous uh, so as not to run the risk of jeopardizing his disability status. He gives insight as to why the waste, the inability of the U.S. aligned forces to hold territory, should not be viewed as some aberrational consequence of the current withdrawal, but rather as an intrinsic element of the entire intervention with which the withdrawal is merely crystallizing. He starts out with the interview saying, I would sit in on staff meetings because part of my position was there to be the joint command that was building the Afghan military and the police force. The division that I worked with was about training and policy for the Afghan police. And I also included arming and funding them. I don't think I could overstate that this was a system just basically designed for funneling money and wasting or losing equipment. I would sit in on staff meetings where we would talk about, okay, this month we sent 14 armored Humvees down to Hemlod province for border patrol and 12 of the 14 Humvees along the way went missing or quote unquote broke down or were disabled. And that was a regular thing. Like the minority of crap that we were adding to the inventory of these border patrol units just wasn't even making it there. Let me give you some context on how we effed up the flow of information. For example, a big part of my job was tracking the number of police recruits that would complete the training cycle. You know, every month or however many times a month I was there, 
when there was over a dozen different police training camps throughout the country, they would have a different training cycle for different police groups. And then I would contact those training facilities and be like, okay, how many police were expected to have graduated this month? How many actually completed the training and how many recruits showed up? And what was funny was about the whole system, there was training camps. Uh, they weren't operated by the U.S. military. They were operated by contractors like MPRI and DynCorp. And those contractors were being hired through the U.S. State Department, even though the DOD was paying for them. But it was the State Department that was hiring them. And that then what made it even more ridiculous was the nature of the contracts that um, made it so numbered. The training figures and the number of police that made it through the training in a month, that number was proprietary to the contractors. So they owned that number. They didn't actually even have to give that to us. He said, I'm a captain in the Air Force working for the command, calling and asking, how many police did you guys train this month? And they didn't have to actually tell me what, how many the numbers were. When they would give me these figures, I would total them up because I'm compiling reports that are presumably going back to be presented to Congress to justify expenditures. And I had military uh, corps uh, major that was a part of the command section. And he would come up to me and say, Hey, we're supposed to cycle through 300 police recruits this month. This says only 150 got through. It's supposed to be 300. I'm like, okay, well it wasn't 300. It was 150. Well, can you massage this report? So it says 300. Basically you lie on the report so that it says 300. So just the whole flow of information was not in any way remotely transparent. And it was set up that way so that only people that knew for certain contractors, the command staff couldn't leverage for them the accurate information. So there you go. The contractors are getting paid. The State Department, who had a hand in civil society 2.0, flipping regimes like Ukraine and Libya, and they tried to do with Syria, all in on it for these money laundering campaigns and equipment laundering. It's all one big ruse. That's why we were there for 20 years. And if anything... That should have been addressed, but we're not even looking at that. And what's crazy is Dwight Eisenhower predicted all of this. Contractors working with the government. He predicted the COVID uh, scientists being bought off. I mean, all the collusion with the military industrial complex, every bit of this Eisenhower told us on his way out the door. Just listen. Three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert 
to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. I confess that I lay down my official responsibilities in this field with a definite sense of disappointment. As one who has witnessed the horror and the lingering sadness of war, as one who knows that another war could utterly destroy this civilization, which has been so slowly and painfully built over thousands of years, I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. As a private citizen, I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. Damn right, Ike. <laughs> we like Ike. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, iHeart. Tune in. You can also get the free Roku channel in your streaming store. Go on to Roku and search for Adrian Slade Show. Donate anchor.fm slash Adrian Slade slash support and call to be on the show. One nine two nine go go USA. God bless. <laughs>